Hear the word of the Lord. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you all. Uh, My name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you're new to Sojourn and have no idea who I am, I preach here. I just didn't preach the last few weeks. So for those who do go here, thanks for the space and uh, the encouragement, the prayers. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, I feel good. I wish we had a different text to come back to so we could have this nice, you know, transition in. But put your helmets on because we're going to dive in here in a second. Uh, if you want to know more about what's going on at the church or you have needs or ways we can serve you or pray for you, in the seat backs in front of you, there's a Connect card. You can fill that out, drop it off at the welcome table on your way out, or you can just look on the back of the bulletin and there's all kinds of events and opportunities and ways for you to move forward. Uh, so we're almost done with the book of James, which we've been going through for a while. Usually what we do as a church is we grab a book of the Bible and we go through it. Um, It's not much more fancy than that. And we've been in James for a while. And uh, one of the big surprises I found is how antagonistic the book of James is. Anyone felt like he's been poking at you a little bit or he's saying stuff that that makes you uncomfortable? It's it's hard to just kind of have this like casual, easy Christian faith and read the book of James. If uh, if you've been here for most of the James series and it's never made you uncomfortable, I would suggest you've probably been reading it wrong. Um, or even not paying attention, or, or you're kind of, maybe that'd be a good indication of the degree to which uh, you're lacking self-awareness. Um, one of the big goals James has had is exposing blind spots. And so he'll use provocative language. He'll be antagonistic to try to open our eyes, to disrupt us. You see this in the ministry of Jesus, to, to make us uncomfortable and disrupt us so that we would see things that maybe we would rather not see. And it's This is going to be one of those days, hopefully. Uh, One of my goals is that we're all uncomfortable. I've been uncomfortable about this for several weeks now, and we can all be uncomfortable together. But on the front end, we have to remind ourselves that God in his love for us will often disrupt us. His word will often unsettle us. And that's not because God delights in getting us in trouble. Uh, A lot of us come from backgrounds or history where we see sin in this right or wrong kind of category. And uh, what I mean by that is, Um, Am I in trouble or am I not in trouble? And the degree to which you do the bad things throughout the week is the degree to which you are in trouble when it comes to Sunday morning and how angry God is with you. But the promise of the gospel is that if you're in Christ, you're not in trouble anymore. Uh, The getting in trouble game is totally done away with, and yet God still provides us with instructions. And so what's that about? Well, we went through Exodus a couple of years ago, the whole book of Exodus. So let's, the first service totally failed this test, okay? So here's your opportunity to be better than them. Uh, in the book of Exodus with the Israelites, did, did God save them before or after he gave them the Ten Commandments? Did he? That's correct, right? 
that was a poorly worded question, and you all still passed it. Uh, so in, in other words, God doesn't say, listen, I'll make a deal for you. I know you've been in slavery for a long time. I'm going to give you some rules. And depending on how well you follow those rules, I'll decide whether or not to save you from the oppression in Egypt, right? He doesn't do that. He says, you are my people. I rescue you. I will walk with you. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Now, if you want to know how to live like freed people, here are some instructions on how to do that. The Ten Commandments to come to a people who are safe already, not a people trying to pass some entrance exam. So when God corrects us, when he brings instruction for us, it's about us reclaiming who we are in Christ. It's about us being human again. See, the, the problem with sin now in Christ isn't that we get in trouble with God because we don't get in trouble with God anymore. The problem is sin dehumanizes. Sin is a parasite that takes something good and twists it, it takes something beautiful and makes it ugly. So whenever you sin, you're settling for something less than being a human. You're dehumanizing yourself or other people. And so God, out of his great love for us, wants more for us. When you correct your children, it's not because you're wondering whether or not to keep them in the family, right? Like if, you're, if your kid keeps not cleaning up his toys, you're like, one of these days, I'm just going to throw you to... No, it's you want, you want more for them. So you provide instruction to them. Drifting, drifting from the, the laws of God, forgetting the promises of God is incredibly destructive. God cares about this, not because he wants to get us in trouble, but because drifting does damage. It dehumanizes you. And, and so it is with today's passage, okay? This is one of the most severe, some of the harshest language that you'll find in the New Testament. And I don't really know a great transition into it other than just say, here we go. So here's the passage. Come now, you rich, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Again, some of the harshest language, um, most severe language in the New Testament. And when we find stuff like this, uh, if you read the Bible long enough, you'll find a place where God disagrees with you. Uh, if you don't find a God who disagrees with you, then you've probably made God in your own image, right? You're probably just worshiping a superhero version of yourself. So God will get you all uncomfortable at some point. And most of the time, what we do, or every Christian I know has done this to some degree at some point, we'll try to find a way out of the passage to make it seem like either it doesn't say what it just plainly says, or uh, it doesn't apply to me, right? So this is true, it just doesn't apply to me. And there's two big ways I've seen people do it with this. And you'll see this in commentaries, like professional Christians are doing this. Um, the first one is to say that James isn't talking about Christians here. He's saying, I haven't used my laser pointer in a month, so here we go. You rich, right? You rich. Uh, and so that's the subject of the sentence, is the rich people out there in the community. So we can get around the harshness of the language by saying, it doesn't apply to me because I'm a Christian. And here James is talking about people who aren't Christians. Uh, the problem with that is all through the book of James, who's he been talking to? Christians, right? And he's almost at the end. Next week is our last sermon in, in James. And so this whole time he's given instructions on what does a living faith look like? How will it look like? And he talks about the way you talk and he talks about whatever, all kinds of stuff about how you live the Christian life. And then he nears the end and is like, I forgot to bust on rich people. Hang on, I'm going to step over here and talk about, there's, there's just no indication in the text 
that he's not talking about Christians here, okay? So we're a church that wants to sit under the authority of God, and, and if there was a way in the text to make this not talk about Christians, I would do that for you, right? Like, let's just move on. But it's just not in there, okay? So we don't get that out of saying uh, it's not about Christians. It's about Christians. The whole thing is about Christians, including this. So that's one way out. The other way, and this is the way I'm going to guess at least 11 of you have done already, um, is to say, you rich, right? You rich. Well, I'm not rich, so we're good, right? Easy sailing Sunday. We'll let all the wealthy people, all the people from Floyd's Knobs, right? Because that's where the money is. And those are the people who need to hear this word and you're elbowing them right now. So that was my first thought. It's like, thank God this doesn't apply to me. Um, Check this out. Here we go. Mutual discomfort. Uh, If you are willing to look at the world population, all the humans alive right now, doesn't everybody kind of want to be in the 1%? You ever had the thought, like, it'd be cool to be in the 1%, right? If you're in the 1%, that means the 1% of income earners worldwide. Uh, So if if you look at globally, the global population, in order to be in the 1% of the wealthiest people in the world, the cutoff line is $32,400 a year. So if, I'm going to say that one more time slowly. To be in the top 1% globally, you have to make $32,400 a year. So if you make $32,400 a year or more, you are rich. Uh, to, to get a little bit more practical, if, if you had to choose which shoes you were going to wear this morning, there's a good chance you're rich. If you had options of what you were going to eat for breakfast this morning, you're probably rich. The fact that you go to a church with locally roasted, freshly ground, imported Brazilian coffee, right? Like, you might be at a rich church. Um, Some of you aren't rich, right? I hope some of you are not rich. I hope there's people in here who aren't making that amount of money and who feel welcomed here and loved here and celebrated here. The point I want us to sit with for a second, though, is this passage applies to nearly every person in this room because most of us are Christians and most of us are making more than $32,000 a year. For some of you, especially, so I imagine some of you making under $32,000 a year, maybe you're just out of college or you're in college and you're working on your first job. Here's a little bit of encouragement. We're going to talk about money for the next 25 minutes or so. Uh, People don't come out of the womb knowing what to do with money, right? They're very, I've never met someone who comes out of the womb and is like, I know everything about budgets and financial planning and 401ks and 403bs and my IRAs and my, like nobody knows that stuff, right? Everybody has to learn about that at some point. Some of you, this is going to be a warning, okay? If you don't pay attention to your money, this is what can happen to you. If, if you don't steward your money, if you don't see it as something God's entrusted you with, bad things will happen to you. So get a hold of it, right? Learn. Everybody had to learn at some point. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the resources we have for you to learn. For some of you, this will be an indictment, okay? Some of you, this will be open your eyes to what you're allowing to happen to yourself, to your own soul, and what you're doing to the people around you. And I'll leave it up to the Spirit of God and you to decide which one of those it is for you. But James starts off and says, weep and howl. Weep and howl, you rich Christians, because of the misery that's going to come to you. So what's the deal? What's it look like? Your riches have rotted. 
Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Evidence when? On the, on the great judgment day of God. God's going to come out, and we've talked about this earlier in James. He's, he's going to say, he's not going to ask you a theology test, right? Like, I spent a, a lot of money and spent a lot of time getting theology under control. There's not a theology test on the last day. He says, did you show mercy? How did you care for the poor people? And now he's saying, the way you spent your money, your savings, that'll be another bit of evidence used against you on judgment day. What do you do with a passage like that? And not, not only will it be evidence against you, it'll also eat your flesh like fire. James is talking about the sin of materialism here. And on the, very, the most superficial level in this text, he's saying it's a bad investment. So if you're saying, what's the, what's the biggest return I could get? He's like, not in stuff. Why? Well, just look, your clothes, because your riches rot. Your garments are moth-eaten. You know this. You get your sweater out here in another couple of months when it's God season, the fall, and you get that sweater out, and then there's holes in it and stuff because something ate it, right? Like, it's moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Like, anything you put money in, it wastes away, whether it's a house or a car or whatever. We have the, all the main, like, if you own anything, this is not like this... I don't know, super insightful lesson for you. If you own something, it's breaking down. And so he's saying it won't last. So it's a, it's a bad investment. The deeper issue, though, notice he says it, it, it eats your flesh like fire. We'll, we'll explain what that means here in a little bit, or James will. Uh, the point is that materialism is a bad investment, yes, because the stuff itself rots, but it'll also rot you too. It, it affects the way your soul is shaped, the way you are a human being. It's a, it's a serious, serious, serious issue. And so the, the question that I think a lot of us are probably asking at this point is, well, how do I know if that's me? How do I know if I have the sin of materialism? And have you ever noticed, especially with money, how we want to know where precisely is the line that I can get to? Where on this side of the line, I know I'm good, but once I cross over this line, I know that I'm not good. Or like, here's a question that comes up all, all the time, not all the time, often with members. Uh, how expensive of a house can I buy? Anybody ever wondered that? Like, how, how much money am I allowed to spend on a house? How much money am I allowed to spend on a car? How do I know if this is me or not? How close to the line of sin can I get before crossing over? James doesn't answer in a direct way, so all of you performance addicts will have to deal with your withdrawals but he starts poking at it here. This is the key to the whole passage, I think. If you want to go home and read about this, I think the key to the whole thing is right here in verse three. He says, you've laid up treasure in the last days. Um, so this word, laser pointer, laid up here. It's talking about hoarding, um, consumption. So real quick, the Bible is not anti-saving, okay? Uh, the Bible would say, if you don't save, you're a fool or you're unrighteous. So you'll get verses like, uh, the righteous leave an inheritance for their children. Uh, you'll get verses like, you sluggard, you lazy person, you should be more like the ant who saves up. Uh, the Bible is not anti-savings. If you have no savings, you're being foolish, okay? Um, Bible is not anti-saving. The Bible is anti-hoarding. Hoarding is when you look to your stuff for comfort or for hope. It's how do I know things are gonna be okay? Well, at least I have this thing. How do I know that everything is going to work out? Well, at least I have this thing. Materialism at its core 
It's the belief that what I own gives me worth and secures my future. It's the, so materialism. How do I know if I have materialism? Well, do you believe that your stuff gives you worth and secures your future? The, the sin of materialism isn't so much about owning stuff as it is your stuff owning you. When your stuff drives you, it possesses you. So in some instances, you simply hold on to it. You don't do anything with it. I, like I think about the great American phenomenon of the mini storage unit, right? Like we, our basement is so full that then we have all this other stuff that we have to go put in the storage unit. Um, we don't do anything with it and we just let it sit there and, and rot. Hoarding shows up another way too, not just the holding on to it, the never letting go of it, um, it also says you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. So when you hoard, when you store up, when your stuff owns you, you'll either keep it, never do anything with it, never put it to any use, or you'll only use it for you, for your own luxury or your own self-indulgence. There's another line where all the Christians are like, well, when does it become luxury? When does it become self-indulgent? That's between you and God, right? He's not going to feed your habit of saying, where's this line so that I can know I'm good or not? Um, this is the first indictment. You hoard your wealth. You either just hold on to it tightly or you spend it only on uh, luxury, self-indulgence. So that's kind of the behavioral problem. There's a timing problem of it too. So let's go, go back to verse three here. You've laid up treasures in the last days. You see, he's talking about when you've done it, not just what you've done, but when you've done it. Here's your big word for the day, eschatology. Eschatology is the end times, the study of what's to come. And he's saying, you don't just have a bad practice here. It's rooted in bad theology about time. Here's what he's saying. You're saving all of this stuff. You're only using your stuff for you. And Jesus is on his way back. You're living like... God hasn't given you this stuff, and you're also living like he's not coming back. You use your money only for yourself and only with today in mind. You've forgotten how all of this ends. All throughout this book, God's been showing us the connection between what we believe and how we live, and it shouldn't surprise us that faith informs and transforms our finances. And he, it's... It's a heart issue, and the heart is complicated, which is why God doesn't come in and just say, do this, don't do this. Here's how much money you can spend here. Here's how much money you can spend here. What he does offer us, though, is there's this beautiful principle that he gives, and there's a metaphor here in verse 4 that we can keep unpeeling deeper and deeper principles. And so look at, look at what he says here. Verse 4, he says, The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What's he talking about here? A guy owns a field, and he's not paying them for the work that they've done, right? He's, he's withholding the money that he's agreed to give them. Uh, what's one of the first principles that we, we see here? Well, one, people are never a means to an end. What's going on with the boss? He wants his money and his stuff, so he'll use his people as a way to get more money and stuff, even at the detriment of his people. The sin of materialism leads you to love stuff more than you love people. 
It elevates the value of material things and devalues uh, the worth of human beings. So the boss fudges on payday. He withholds checks. Why would he do that? Because he loves his stuff more than he loves his people. There's all kinds of applications for us just, just at, at this point. Like if you ever ask to borrow something from somebody, a tool, a lawnmower, and they let you borrow it, and you're like, yeah, I'll give it back to you next week, but you secretly hope that if you keep it long enough, they'll forget about it, and then you just get to keep it? If you're not laughing, that means y'all have done it, right? What about, have you ever promised to pay somebody something? I'll pay you back this amount then, and then you delay in making good? You come up with excuses? Well, see, what happened was, like, anytime the story starts with what happened, it's like, okay, just keep it, right? Like, just, just keep it. What happened was this thing happened and that, and so I'll, I'm still going to pay you, but it's just, you know, you make excuses. What about in a business transaction? Some of you deal with business transactions inside the church, outside the church, where you work. You, you try to squeeze out every last penny to the detriment of partners, employees, or, or your church. Do you see the end goal of every interaction as profit margin, dollar amounts, do you ever find yourself drawn to people with nicer stuff in hopes that you get access to their stuff too? Why is it that people who are obviously wealthier, that everyone knows is wealthy, why is it that they seem so much more popular than the people who are obviously poor? Have you ever noticed that? Why, why is it? They're just so much friendlier. They're just nicer. It's like, no, you want to ride in their car. You want to eat at their house. You want to go to the lake house. You want to go on vacation with them. Do you ever find yourself drawn to people? in hopes of getting some of their stuff? Do you ever find yourself saying no to generosity because you're unwilling to let go of what you have? I think if we, if we dig a little deeper into this principle, James is saying kingdom economics works something like this. And this, is, this goes throughout the whole Bible. This is God speaking through James here. If your money isn't going into people, it'll begin to rot. It'll begin to waste away. And what's more, it'll rot you too. If your money isn't going in to people, it'll rot, and it'll rot your own soul. So here's the really difficult principle in that, okay? So where do we start? You should never value stuff over people. People are never a means to an end. So the invitation is to put our money into people. And so listen, when you prioritize your lifestyle over God's kingdom, it will kill you. It will be a slow, miserable death. Have you ever found a wealthy person? A celebrity who's like, you know what? I was unhappy. I was depressed. But once I became a millionaire, everything got better. You know? I found people say like, I'm happy I have a jet ski, but I still go to a therapist and I'm on anti-anxiety medication and I have this hole in my soul. You know what I mean? Like, I've never met someone who's like, once you make X amount of dollars then that hole goes away. Studies would say you stop getting happier once you make $75,000. So if that's your dream, like to be happy because of money, well, just know once you hit $75,000, people say it doesn't make you any happier after that. Like we have millions of rich people, the real rich, right? Because we're not, I know you said the $32,000 thing. I mean the real rich people. Uh, and no one says it works. When you prioritize your lifestyle over God's kingdom, it, it will kill you. And so the simple invitation into this, uh, like I want our church to be, to have burned in our minds this idea of generosity. That's been like one of the hallmark attributes of the people of God for the last 2,000 years, is their robust financial promiscuity. Like they're just willingness to give and to share. 
And again, I wish I had a real neat system to tell you, do this and you'll know you're good. If you're totally clueless on finances, a great place to start would be our, um, your, a personal finance plan. This is this booklet that Pastor Bobby and some others have put together. It's free and I think it's wonderful. And it outlines things like how to make a budget, what are some healthy breakdowns for how to give and doing this practically. Um, but here's just one other principle that I you know, it's just tough. It's tough for me too, all right? Uh, but I believe this with everything in me. Um, every Christian, here's a principle for you. Every Christian needs to live below what they're capable of. Every Christian needs to live below what they're capable of. And the more you make, as the raises come, the wider that gap should be between how you do live and how you could live. Why? Because as the raises come, you're thinking less about, oh, now I can have this. Now I could buy this. Now we could upgrade to leather or w- whatever it is. Instead, you're thinking, now I get to bless him. I get to bless her. We get to come alongside in, in this organization. And again, I don't know where the line is, okay? There, stop thinking about the line and instead start thinking about the posture of your heart. Christianity says your generosity must dictate your lifestyle. So your generosity dictates your quality of life. For most of us, materialism, American capitalism would say, your lifestyle dictates your generosity. For so many of us, because we bought the house, we bought the car, we pushed out on the credit cards a little bit. I got a letter in the mail from Walt Disney World, the happiest place on earth, by the way, that was inviting me to finance our next trip to Disney at like 17.8% interest. Did you know? I didn't know you could finance a vacation. I didn't know you could take a loan out on a vacation. Some of you are twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars in credit card debt because you've forgotten like this very simple principle: don't buy what you can't afford. Right? Like, for so many of us, we've made these financial decisions, and now we say things like, "Well, we can't be generous because, like, some of you can't like life." has all kinds of different circumstances. Some of you aren't in a position where you can give as much as you wish you could, and it's not your fault. A lot of you are in a position where you can't give, and it is your fault. And that personal finance book is a great way to start digging your way out of it. Christianity says your generosity must dictate your lifestyle. And so many of us live in a world where our lifestyles are dictating our generosity. And again, this this isn't a rule here. I don't think the the New Testament binds Christians to this, but giving away 10% of your money is is just a great rule of thumb because there's very few of us that can give 10% away and have it not affect our lifestyle. There's very few of us that can hit that 10% mark and we don't feel it or it doesn't change the way we live. So like, look at your life. Is there a commitment to generosity in your life? And maybe you're like, I knew it. The church just doesn't want money. This is one of the few, finances are one of the few things where God says, I dare you. He says, I I dare you. You get these verses in the Old Testament. I give to me and see what happens. Well, that sounds like prosperity gospel. Well, to be totally honest, the prosperity gospel is like 38% right. They're not all the way right, but there's parts of it that are really close. I've never seen a Christian who prioritized their giving and all of a sudden was in long-term financial detriment was just in long-term paralyzing need. I've never, ever seen it happen. And so if you want to try it and you're like, I don't trust you, then just give it somewhere else. 
It doesn't, God loves this church and he'll provide for this church. I don't need your money. God doesn't need your money. Watch what happens as you prioritize giving in your life. Find somebody in need. There's all kinds of amazing organizations in our city eager to help and love and serve people and, and see what happens when you prioritize your giving. Some of you guys come here and you don't give a nickel or, or you come and you just give a nickel or you give a nickel once every six or seven months and it's just totally off on your radar. It's inconsistent and it's, it's nowhere near what affects your lifestyle. Or the bucket goes by and you, you drop in a couple of bucks and you're like, yeah, I gave, I'm good. And you, you do it to be in or out of this like magic doghouse you think God has put you in. And what this text is telling you is you're hoarding on the last days. Your house is out of order. Not only does that reveal a shallow faith, it's also putting the health of your soul at risk. It'll be evidence against you on the last day. And if you're with any sin in life, okay, Paul gets into this in Romans, with any sin in your life, if your immediate response is, I'm good, Jesus will forgive me, be very careful. Like you need to take a much closer look at your soul if you look at the cross of Christ as an excuse. Should we continue sinning so that grace may abound? Should we live in willful, continuous disobedience, thinking that, you know, I just said this magic incantation, so God is good with me? Is the cross so insignificant to you that you will just keep on spitting in the face of God, knowing what you're doing? There are all kinds of warnings for that kind of mentality. Be very careful. I'm not sitting here saying you're not a Christian. I am saying you might not be a Christian. If you can look at the commands of God and say, these don't apply to me, or at least Jesus will forgive me. It's putting your own soul at risk. And in this last, there's this real mysterious, weird verse here at the end that throws everybody into a tizzy. Uh, verse six, this is explaining the heart of what's happening here. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. People who want this to not be about Christians will say, look, the rich people went around killing Christians and they don't resist you. So some of your translations will put this in plural. You remember single, singular nouns and plural nouns? I'm talking about one group of people or a whole bunch of people. Uh, this is a singular person. It's one. I'm talking about one person. And then here's some more grammar. Uh, the, you get the definite article here. So it's one person who is righteous. According to the Bible, who is the one righteous person? Jesus, Jesus you got that right. Uh, and so what is this talking about? It's, it's saying we have condemned, we have murdered the righteous person and that righteous person did not resist you. This is James talking about Jesus. And he's saying, listen, you guys, one came who was righteous, who laid down his wealth to lift us up. And we betrayed him. We slandered him. We murdered him. And he did not resist us. He didn't fight back. He allowed himself to be stripped, to be scorned, to be beaten, to be hung on a cross and made a public display of, not to condemn you, not to indict you, but to free you because he's, he loves you. James is saying, if materialism is at root in your heart, not only have you forgotten that Jesus is coming back, you've forgotten that he's come at all. You've forgotten that he loves you. If you love your money, if your stuff owns you, you have entirely forgotten, if not outright neglected, the love of God shown to you, displayed for you, demonstrated for you in Christ. You've forgotten that condemned in your place he stood so you could be free and be a human again. This is the principles, you know? We, we, people are never a means to an end. We never value stuff over people. And every Christian 
must live below what we're capable of. And the more you make, the further below it should be, the wider that gap should be. And so I think implicit in this, there's a couple of pictures of what does it look like when we go down that road and what does it look like when we remember what God's done for us. And the first picture of hoarding, uh, a picture of how wealth sets our flesh on fire, that it dehumanizes, that it takes advantages, uh, advantage of other people, I think is seen in Judas. Some of you know the story. Uh, he sells Jesus out for a bag of silver. And you remember, what's the, after the deal is done, right? After Jesus looks at Judas and says, you'll betray me with a kiss? After Jesus is hauled away, does anyone remember what G Judas goes and does, what he tries to do? Before he hangs himself, he tries to give the money back, right? Maybe you've done this. You've done something slimy or scheming, and then the thing condemns you, right? It's like it, you can't even look at it. You feel so guilty and ashamed. And, and the people that paid off Judas are like, well, I don't care. You keep the money, man. What's it, what's it to you? Uh, we don't want this money back. And this thing that Judas betrayed God himself for, he throws on the ground in the temple. In Matthew 25, it says he literally threw it. This love of money he had that that gave birth to doing something so horrific. You can see it eating his flesh, right? Setting his skin on fire. Get this away from me. And he goes from there and he hangs himself. You see what it looks like when sin eats your flesh on fire, when sin eats your flesh and sets it on fire, when it dehumanizes yourself. Materialism twists the soul and it clouds the mind and it makes us forget, and eventually it will eat us from the inside out. If you don't want to receive the word of God this morning, I promise you, you'll learn the lesson of materialism. At some point, you will learn this lesson. If you let that roll long enough, it'll eat you from the inside out. Then we get a picture on the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, Judas walked with Jesus, right? He was in the inner circle. He ate with Jesus, heard the teachings of Jesus. And we get somebody on the other end, someone who had no influence, someone that, I just wonder, you know, like, did, did Judas start liking the feeling of being important? You know, he walks into a room and people are like, oh, that's Judas. He's one of the disciples. Have to sit down. You know, you start feeling good about yourself. We get somebody who's not important, who's on the absolute margins of society. It's from, it's from a hooker. She comes to Jesus, interrupts a meal, someone that was an outcast, that was overlooked, that was despised, and she takes something that was worth a year's salary. What is it for you? How much would that be? You remember who has the problem with what this lady does with this thing that's worth a year's salary? It's Judas. Judas, who kept track of the disciples' money. She takes this thing worth a year's salary that she would have used to do her own job, her most precious possession in the world and she breaks it open and pours it out on the feet of Jesus. She washes her hair or his feet with her hair, dries it off. And Judas is over here saying, think of all the good Christian stuff we could do with that. Jesus rebukes Judas and he celebrates this woman. This is what happens when you remember who Jesus is. This is what happens when you remember. You stop saying, where's the line? Where's the line that I need to get you to be a good Christian? You say, everything I have is yours. I see what you've done for me. There's nothing that is precious enough that I can give back to you. So take it all. Whatever you want, you can have. 
at whatever expense you can have. This woman wasn't saying, how much do I need to give to not be in trouble with Jesus? How much do I need to give to impress the disciples and maybe they'll let me come to church now? She was saying, I love him so much, he can have it all. I don't have enough to show my love for you. She's not, look at the postures here. She's not looking for a line to cross. She's got a heart filled with the love of God who's eager to respond. This is our invitation to be a church that is so anchored in God's generosity to us in Christ that it's so real for us that we just eagerly give. We are people marked by generosity. And again, this doesn't mean like, don't save, retirement is sinful. I'm not saying any of that stuff. We are saying that we will be a people who have so experienced the love of God for us in Christ that we're not owned by our stuff anymore. We know our worth is secured, our hope is secured by what Christ has done for us. And so we come back to the story of Judas. This is, you realize we remember this every week, the story of betrayal, of materialism, of disordered loves. This is at the heart of our faith. Jesus looks to us and he says, on the night I was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. I hope some of you are are struggling right now. Like you feel your loves being disordered. You know this is something that is a long ways off. You've been going to church for years and you've never prioritized your giving. The first invitation for you is to look to the body of Christ broken for you and remember you're not in trouble, but you are loved by God. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. This is what seals your relationship with God. This is what seals the new covenant with God. It's not our promises of financial generosity. It's not our religious performances that save us. It's the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, listen, before you give a penny to Jesus, you give your heart to Jesus, right? That's what, do you realize God doesn't need your money? You realize how unimaginably rich God is. He owns the whole universe. Christ is literally holding the universe together. He does not need your money. Before you give a thing to God, give yourself to God. That's your invitation if you're here and you don't know Jesus. We'll have men and women up front that can talk you through that and pray with you after the service. If you are a Christian, remember the love of God and say to God, how should I respond? What is my next step? Um, Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. Uh, The wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come remember and celebrate God's love for us. Let's pray.